When I was um, younger, I had such an affinity for uh, pre-episode recaps, uh, particularly of cartoons that would begin with the words previously on. Some of you might know that kind of introduction. And when you hear that, at least when I did, something about that would not only recall my anticipation to, to recall what happened in the last episode, but it would build anticipation of what might come next. And this wasn't only with cartoons. Some of you know, if you've listened to um, R.C. Sproul's lecture, lectures over the years, you know that a lot of times he would begin a lecture by saying something like, in our last session, when we looked at, like something like that. And I love that, that, that pre-episode recap to kind of remind you in kind of snippet form where we've been and builds anticipation for where we will go. Now, if you go back through all the Second Samuel messages, we've had our share of that along the way. And I do think before we get into our text, it's appropriate to look back before we look forward. So with that being said, previously in our study of Second Samuel, you might recall that we began looking at the fifth installment of the essential, essentially what is an epilogue in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel ends in chapters 21 through 24 with what is essentially an epilogue. They serve as a kind of climactic appendix, not simply an appendix, but an epilogue, and it's a climactic epilogue comprised of six sections. We are in section number five. And in this section, we were first, if you remember last week, we were introduced to the three and know how much there was to learn from them. We were introduced to Jashobim. We're going with his name as it's rendered in 1 Chronicles 11. And you remember him? He was the one who was a mighty military man. According to the text, he killed 800 men on the field of battle at one time. And even for the most formidable of military men, that's quite a day's work. So there this guy was, and we don't know the exact details of what it was like on the battlefield. But if the pattern serves true, when you look at him and then the other men that follow, he was in a against the odds, in an against the odds kind of context. And if you remember, we were afforded the opportunity to be reminded that although statistical analysis has its place, it doesn't have the final say in the kingdom of God. Odds are, if you have 300 men going against 120,000 men, you're going to lose. Odds are if you have to feed 5,000 plus people, 5,000 men plus others with just a little boy's lunch, odds are you won't be able to do it. Odds are if the doctors tell your wife that you have a 5% chance of survival and the doctors tell you you have a 0% chance of survival, as was the case in that pastor's testimony that I told you last week, odds are you're not coming out of that. But one of the things that we looked at last week is that when the living God and His eternally begotten Son are inserted into the equation, the odds become a backdrop to augment the greatness of the prospective intervention of God. Now the God of heaven may see fit, He may see fit to have the odds be a precursor to the fulfillment of that to which they point. That could be the case. The odds are pointing in this way, and according to God's sovereignty, it's going to work out that way. Or, they can be like the water that Elijah poured on the sacrifice and the wood at Mount Carmel. Three times, if you remember. Kept pouring water, pouring water, pouring water. Three times before the fire of Yahweh fell from heaven. And the odds could be a kind of witness to the fact that what happened when God intervened was not the result of, say, just natural combustion in 1 Kings 18. Or just natural processes taking their place. It was the intervention of Almighty God. 
That was the first man we were introduced to. Then we were introduced to Eleazar. And Eleazar, if you remember, he was with David and they took their stand at a specific place that's identified in 1 Chronicles in a, in a piece of ground that was full of barley. Now, if you remember, just as an aside, this is rather interesting. If you go through 1 Samuel, you'll see over and over again, you see this a little bit in Judges and you see it in the beginning of 2 Samuel too. You could see that the Philistines were essentially like lantern flies. Like, you know, the lantern flies that are around, the invasive species that have invaded our territory. And you may take out a bunch of lantern flies and you feel like you did a good job. Like, I took out a whole bunch of lantern flies. I am saving, you know, foliage in my, foliage in my land and so on. And then before you know it, there's more lantern flies coming. That's what the Philistines were essentially like. Like, you go through 1 Samuel and there's victories over the Philistines left and right, but they just keep coming. They infested the land, as it were. Garrison here, garrison there. Well, apparently, they were going to either rob and or destroy some crops in a given place in Pasdamim. And there, Eleazar and David take their stand. In the middle of the field, they took their stand in 1 Chronicles 11 and they defended that land. But we saw Eleazar, interestingly enough, according to the text, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. That was in verse 10 of 2 Samuel 23. And we saw that he was a model of persistence. He didn't quit. He just kept going. He kept battling to the point with such dogged tenacity that his hand stuck to the sword. And it was a reminder for us that even though on the path of persistence there will be so many off-ramps with signs that essentially read, why continue? What's the point? That we are to persist. Persist in prayer. Persist in sharing the Gospel. Persist in holding tightly to the sword of the Spirit as we seek to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Then we saw Shammah. And by the way, there was other things that we saw at Eleazar. You can't do everything in a recap, but remember, his persistence led to other people being blessed, right? People who retreated from the battlefield were blessed because he stood in the battlefield and was persistent. There's a lot. And he didn't win the battle because of his persistence, but the Lord or Yahweh granted victory on that day. You can't cover everything in a recap, though I want to, but you can't. Then there was Shammah, and Shammah we saw was a man who essentially seems to have taken his stand. He wasn't looking for a fight, but the fight showed up at his doorstep. And so there he was, and he had to take a stand, even when others didn't and others fled. And he stood firm, and God wrought a victory through him. And then finally, last week, we saw the narrative of those who overheard David, if you remember, when in a moment of recollection and longing, when that resulted in expression, and David said, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David's wish became the prerogative of his men, and they went to go get it. They traveled 12 miles from where they were to the well in Bethlehem. And they didn't go around Philistines. They went through Philistines. They risked their lives. They went to that well, and they came back, and they brought the water to David, and David poured it out as a drink offering before the Lord. Not as an act of waste, but if you remember, as an act of worship. He knew he wasn't worthy of such an offering. He saw that water as though it were the blood of those men. They risked their lives for him, and he poured it out to the Lord. And we concluded last week's message with recalling how our king did not leave a cave, but he left the glories of heaven. And he went to a cross where he would say, I thirst. And he would bear the wrath that we deserve so that all who believe in him might drink freely of the water of life forever. 
That's where we were last week. We come now to the remaining sections of this section. We begin in 2 Samuel 23, verses 18 and 19, where we read, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So in verses 18 through 23 of 2 Samuel 23, we have the exploits of two men. We have a little bit here of Abishai. We're going to have more of Benaiah coming up. Now this man, Abishai, was the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, which means that he was David's nephew. He was David's nephew. He was the one, if you remember, who slew the giant that almost slew David, Ishbi Benab. We saw that in 2 Samuel 21. He was on the battlefield alongside of David, and thus he was able to render help to David when David was in need of it. David was weary, and that giant, Ishbi Benob, said, okay, David is weary, he's going to be easy pickings now, but because Abishai was there, he was able to help him on the battlefield. And a quick reminder for Christians why it's so important to gather together, because if somebody is weary on the battlefield, you can't help them if you're not on the battlefield. There's something about being together. Yeah, I know you could call and I know you could text, but the prescription that Christ has given His people and the command that He has given to His people is that we gather together. And there might be somebody who's like David on a given moment, on a given Sunday, who needs the encouragement of a proverbial Abishai to come alongside of them. And it's a good thing also to be reminded that you're not David, I know, but you do need an Abishai. You need people to come alongside of you when you're weary and help you as well. And that's part of why we gather according to Jesus' prescription, according to God's prescription for the local church. Now, if you remember, I won't go too much into Abishai, uh, but you might remember that he was a man who seems to have had a short fuse. A short fuse that, when you go through the text, doesn't really seem to have lengthened at any point. It just seems to have had a kind of temper. So I want us to be reminded of that, not because I think he becomes a justification for a Christian to walk around with a short temper. You don't want to do that. Like, hey, Abishai was used by God even though he had a short temper, so I can keep my short temper. It could follow me around like that dust cloud will follow Pigpen in Charlie Brown's Peanuts, just kind of was always there with him. You don't want your temper to always be with you if you have a temper. You want to slay it. You want to put it to death. But nonetheless, God used this man, impetuous as he could be, short temper that he had, but he was a courageous warrior. The 18,000 Edomites that fell to him in the Valley of Salt knew that all too well. You can see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 12. Here we're told that he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among the first three. Now let me just say a couple of things here, just to make sure nobody's confused. Please do not think that he threw a spear like 300 times at people on the battlefield. That's not the idea. Or that maybe if somebody's just imagining him throwing it once and it kind of making its way in some supernatural way through all the enemies on the battlefield, that's not what happened. The idea was that a spear would be used in close combat. It was, as has been noted by quite a few commentators, a thrusting weapon rather than a throwing weapon in those kind of military contexts. So here he was, and 300 men die on the battlefield. He apparently was masterful in combat, and he won a name among these three. 
Uh, some could render it as the 30, when he run, won a name among the 30, or maybe the three that are mentioned, Benaiah, and then Asahel, who is mentioned, and Abishai won a name um, among that three, the second three, even though he was not ranked among the first three. Now, I find it interesting and appropriate that the position that Abishai secured was connected to the men that he defeated on the field of battle. Although the variables are different, it was the same essentially with Joshua Beam, wasn't it? He killed 800 men, at least according to the rendering in 2 Samuel. Maybe it was 300 men per Chronicles. But he killed 800 men on the field of battle at one time. This was quite a feat. So he won an honor and ranking among the first three. And then you have a man like this, Abishai, who kills 300 men. And he, as a military warrior, wins a, a prominent place of honor and ranking. That's connected to the amount of enemies that he defeated. Now, I want to temporarily forego yet another opportunity to remind us that as New Covenant Christians, our sword slaying is not directed towards other people, like Philistines. It's directed towards our own sin. I want to temporarily forego that opportunity to expound upon that by saying this. Let me remind you that in the kingdom of God, greatness and being first, if you will, is not connected to the number of soldiers that are slain, but it's connected to the number of people that are served. Remember how it looks in this New Testament kingdom. Jesus said, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Greatness wasn't about how many people you ruled. Like That was the idea in that first century context. The more people you rule, the greater you are. It's an idea that a lot of people have today. The more prominent you are, the more people you have under you. Maybe it's the more employees you have, or the more constituents that you have if you're in a position of authority. The more people you rule, the greater you are. In the military context, in this old covenant context that we're studying here, at least some of the greatness and honor afforded to these soldiers was connected to the enemies that they defeated on the battlefield. And I just want to remind you from a new covenant perspective, Jesus says, if you want to be first, then you become last. You want to be the greatest, then you become the least. It's not about how many people or enemies you slay on the battlefield, like in that old covenant context. It's not about how many people you rule over. It's about how many people you serve. I think that is powerful. I think it's a clear, um, a clear application for us to say, if we want to pursue the kind of greatness that Jesus calls His people to pursue, it's by taking the low road. It's by becoming a servant. And nobody illustrated this better than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although He was in the form of God, He had equality with God. He was the eternal Son of God. He didn't think it a thing to be grasped or held on to but he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant and he humbled himself. Not only in the incarnation, not only as a child that was obedient to his parents, not only in being a servant to all that would show up at his, where he was for healing and feeding the 5,000 plus and so on, but he became a servant even to the point of death, death on the cross. Greatness is connected with service. But I told you I was going to temporarily forego the opportunity to remind us that we're not called to kill Philistines, we're called to slay sin. And I think the two ideas go together. Because if you're going to serve others, you know what you have to slay? 
You have to slay the sin of self-indulgence. You have to slay the sin of self-seeking and self-pleasing. Because you're going to want to have people serve you or you just want to want to sit on the sidelines. You're not going to want to serve others. So what you have to do if you're going to serve others and rack up the kind of figures that we are called to rack up, as it were, as opposed to, say, Abishai and others in that Old Covenant context, you've got to slay your sin. You've got to slay, as it were, self. And by the grace of God, you want to serve others, minister to others, share the gospel with others. And you don't have to keep track of the numbers. <laughs> The one who ultimately kept track of Abishai's combat victories is the one who keeps track of all of the service of his people for the kingdom. And by the way, while Abishai got a name among the second three, or the thirty, we know who the chief among ten thousand par excellence is. The one with a name that is above every name and numbers that no one can outdo. And I'm not simply talking about feeding 5,000 plus or 4,000 plus or healing the multitudes that came to his door. I'm talking about the fact that with one sacrificial offering, Jesus Christ laying down his life for sinners, he secured the forgiveness for a multitude of people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue. With one act, right? You imagine Abishai had to swing that spear a lot to secure some victories on the battlefield, to slay other soldiers. But Jesus, with one act, laying down His life, secured victory and forgiveness for, at least from our vantage point, an untold multitude of men and women. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Human beings can take life, either justly, through a kind of Romans 13 capital punishment context or something like that, or unjustly, but only the triune God can give eternal life. Now we come to the next of David's mighty men, Benaiah. In verses 20 through 23 we read, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab, He had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. For those of you who like reading biographies, um, let me tell you, there isn't a biography on Benaiah. (laughs) But if there were, based on the snippets of his biography that we see in the scriptures, I think it would be very interesting. This man is a rather interesting man. I'm going to resist um, the inclination to unpack who he was in great detail and kind of stick to the text, but let me just tell you a little bit about him. He was, essentially, according to this passage, he appears to have been David's personal bodyguard and over those who served in that capacity. He appears to have had a similar, if not the same, position to what David had, at least for a time, in Saul's army. You can see that in 1 Samuel 22, verse 14. He was a man who was placed in charge of the 30, 1 Chronicles 27.6, and he became a general over the third division of David's army. Very interestingly, David set up the army in such a way where different divisions would serve for different times. 
And he was over 24,000 men, which is no small task. He was faithful to David when the Absalom rebellion happened. And not to give away the story, but when you get into 1 Kings and another usurpation happens when Adonijah seeks to usurp the throne, Benaniah stays faithful. He's a faithful man. There's a lot more that could be said about him. He had a great part in Solomon's coronation. He had a great part in helping secure the succession of the throne to Solomon. Here we're told that he was the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada appears to have been a priest. His hometown was Kabzeel, a town on the far south of Judah. And he had done many deeds. So you just get a little snippet here. It reminds me of what you have in the Gospels. When you see some of the many deeds that Jesus did, but we're reminded towards the end of the Gospel of John that, all the, that the earth couldn't hold all the books that would be written if we were to actually chronicle everything that Jesus did. Well, Benaiah, in a much smaller way, he did many deeds. But here we just have a little sampling. We have three of them. So here they are. First, he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. And this is rendered differently in different translations. Some translations speak about two sons of a hero of Moab or something like that. Um, the word that's used here for lion-like heroes is a Hebrew word, Ariel. Ariel. According to um, Kiel and Dalich, they noted the Arabs and Persians call every remarkably brave man Ariel, or Lion of God. So these men might have been so fierce in their ability, so fierce on the battlefield that they were essentially known as Lions of God, as it were, at least by the Moabites. So these were Moab's finest, if not their best warriors, and Benaiah defeated them both. Story one of Benaiah. Second, he went down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Now, as many people have noted, Benaiah met the worst of enemies in the worst of places under the worst of conditions. You don't have to, um, you don't want to have to battle a lion. But some did, right? David defended sheep and he battled a lion. But think about what Benaiah had to do. Benaiah battled a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. I mean, you don't want to battle a lion, period. And if you have to battle a lion, you probably don't want to be in a pit, right? You're going to kind of be restricted in your movement, and you're going to be kind of, you know, maybe easy pickings for the lion. And you don't want to have to battle a lion on a snowy day, because you could slip in the snow, your hands could become numb, you could deal with frostbite, but frostbite is probably the least of your problems if you're dealing with a lion in the pit on a snowy day. But you have a lot working against you. And let me just say this, because some people might be like wondering, like, why did he do that? Like, did he just find a lion and it's like, boys, watch this. I'm going to go kill the lion in the pit. It's snowing now. Be impressed. <laughs> I, I'll tell you my opinion. We don't get the, content, the, the context laid out here. I don't think that's what happened. I think the context, this is one of David's mighty men, a valiant man. I don't think this was simply sport. It doesn't fit with the theme of what we see happening, right? We see Shammah having to defend land on behalf of others. We see Eleazar and David having to defend land on behalf of others. That's part of what we see within the context. I think, so I'm telling you I think, because we're not told explicitly in the text, I think it was something like this. Due to the snow that was falling, and a lion looking for food in, say, a wilderness or forest-like place and not finding any, ventured outside of his normal territory. And that would just happen generally anyway. You go through the scriptures, you see a man of God was killed by a lion.
lion. You see, Samson had to deal with the lion. People in that context, in that part of the world, at least at that time, as has been witnessed to by what has been unearthed in that area of the world, by the way, as well, had to deal with lions. So it's likely that a lion went into some civilian territory, likely terrorized the people who were living in that town or village, went into a pit, which was likely a cistern, a kind of water pit, and there he was, and Benaiah, courageous man as he was, this man does not seem to have known fear from what we gather. I'm not saying he didn't know fear, but this man just kind of walked into things that other people would run away from. And he went, and I would think that he risked his life to kill the lion on behalf of the people that would be terrorized by the lion. I think contextually, that would make the most sense. And then third, he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man, and that could be rendered as a man of appearance. You look in 1 Chronicles, this was a man of great height. He was five cubits tall, so he wasn't as tall as Goliath, but he was about seven foot six inches tall. He was a big guy. And we're told that he had a spear in his hand, like a weaver's beam. When you hear that, think really big spear. But then you see what Benaiah had in his hand, a staff. Staff. It's not a sword. It's not a spear. So he's got a short staff that he's got to use. And then this man that he has to battle has a long weaver's beam. Think really big kind of spear kind of thing. And he goes, and although he was outmatched by weaponry, he wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. Now he did these things, and we're told in verse 22, as a result, he won a name among the three mighty men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. He seems to have been one of David's, um, over David's bodyguard, as it were. And the language could also speak of being, him being made of David's privy council. He appeared not only to be a great warrior, uh, but he was somebody that David could trust. So you could say at this point, you can probably say at this point, what in the world does that have to do with me? I've never even seen a lion outside of a zoo. <laughs> and I don't plan to battle one in a snowy pit. And I don't plan to battle one at all. And you can start thinking like that. But I think I would encourage you to say, what is the theme through these three episodes of Benaiah? I racked my brain thinking about this. Because there's a lot I could tell you about him. I think if you look at this man, the whole narrative, he was a faithful man. Uh, he was a man that didn't make excuses. Like, he's the kind of guy that did not make excuses, but he did what he had to do. That's, a kind of, that's kind of what you glean from his example. But I think if you had to draw a common thread or tie a common thread through these three episodes, I think it would be something like this. Although he was outmatched by fearful adversaries in fearful circumstances, he overcame them. I mean, these were fearful adversaries. A lion in a pit, two lion-like warriors of Moab. It's enough to deal with one of them, but you have to deal with two of them. And then a man that you have to battle who's seven foot six inches tall, and you have a little staff, and he's got a long weaver's beam. He was facing fearful enemies in fearful circumstances. And you might say again, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, I want to encourage you that as the people of God, by the grace of God, you could overcome fearful circumstances and fearful enemies that you battle. Though it may look different in different contexts. I told you some years back of a missionary to Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia, Dick McClellan, and there was a story that I had shared with you about how when he was on the battlefield there was a witch doctor and a slave who showed up at his mission's home. 
And when they showed up at the mission's home, they asked um, Dick McClellan if he was Jesus. Apparently, they had heard some mixture of error and truth, and they asked him if he was Jesus. And clearly, him being a witness of the Gospels, and said that he wasn't. And he began to share with them the Gospel. But then, interestingly enough, a local evangelist came to the house as well. I don't know the details as to how he knew that the witch doctor and the slave was there were there, but he came. And then, for the better part of three nights, two days and three nights, the two of them shared the Gospel with the witch doctor and this slave. At the end of which, they both came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They lifted up their right hand and they said that they renounced Satan, blood sacrifices, evil practices, and all of their sin. And then, in keeping with their culture, they lifted two hands. And they said something along the lines of having renounced Satan... And having believed that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me or died for my sins, I take Him as my Savior with two hands and I will not deny Him. The idea of taking Him with two hands in that culture meant you're not holding anything back. I'm not just taking Him with one, I'm taking Him with two. That's overcoming what many would think of as fearful circumstances. Right? You're in the mission field, you're in a place you're not familiar with, and then you have a witch doctor show up at your home with a slave, and you don't know what they might want to do with you, you don't know if they're perceiving you as an enemy or a threat, and how they might hurt you, but by the grace of God, you push past whatever fear you might have had, and you share the gospel, and they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture of overcoming fearful circumstances. But it could also look like giving your life on the mission field. It could look like Nate Saint. It could look like giving your life, even as Jim Elliot did, and bringing the gospel to those who are outside of Christ, and you lose your life on the field of battle. Remember, Jesus told those in Smyrna to be faithful to the point of death. So how am I connecting that with this? I want you to see from a new covenant perspective, overcoming fearful circumstances may lead to great success in a new covenant context. People coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it may lead not to soldiers dying on the battlefield, but to Christians giving their lives on the mission field. And that is a success. That is overcoming. See, victory will not always look like being successful in the way that we'd like to be successful. But overcoming looks like being faithful. Beniah, if he was anything, when you look in the Scriptures, he was a faithful man. And he overcame by being faithful. And by God's grace, you as a New Testament Christian will be faithful as well. Now we come to verses 24 through 39. And having read verses 24 through 39 earlier, and wanting to make some points for the sake of time, I want to draw your attention to a few names on this list. So look at verses 24 through 39. In verse 24, we see Asahel. Remember him? He was David's nephew. He was the man who was killed by Abner, and I won't remind you all too much about him, but he was the man whose strength became his weakness. His great speed was used to catch Abner, but then he also caught Abner's spear because he got too close to him. That's Asahel, but he was a mighty man, He was among, um, apparently, this second tier of three. But now I want to call your attention to some other interesting names in the list. Some that can easily get overlooked. We find a little bit of explanation for what happened earlier in 2 Samuel. Namely, the betrayal of Ahithophel. You might remember that Ahithophel was a 
trusted counselor of David. Ahithophel, I would say, given the way he's used in the Psalms, at least that appears to be who David's referencing when he does talk about being betrayed by a familiar friend, I think Ahithophel was a kind of type of Judas. You say, well, why did he betray David? I think we get a little bit of an explanation as to why he did when we look at this list. So I want to call your attention to verse 34. Look at 34. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Eliam. Okay, so Eliam is Ahithophel's son. And Ahithophel is the man who betrayed David. Well, when you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, we find out that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam. Which means Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. I'd be willing to say, I think it's an educated guess to think that when David took Bathsheba, and he had no right to do so, and when David did what he did, that Ahithophel took notice of it, and when Absalom began his rebellion, Ahithophel was all but glad, was, all, was completely glad to join in that rebellion. My guess is that he hated David, maybe for other reasons, but not the least of which would be David taking Bathsheba from Uriah in the unlawful manner in which he did. So David's sin with Bathsheba, I would say, likely drove Ahithophel's betrayal of David during the Absalom rebellion. Why? Because Ahithophel was the father of Eliam, and Eliam was the father of Bathsheba, so that means that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. But I do think there's encouragement here for Christians, and I don't want you to miss this. Eliam is on this list, which suggests to me that he had not betrayed David. Which suggests to me, from what we gather, that he had stayed the course and was one of David's mighty men, and his name was not down in infamy like Ahithophel's was. What a cost that would be to be faithful to God's anointed David. Even though he was a fallen man and a sinner and he had done something heinous which he shouldn't have done with Bathsheba, yet Eliam stays the course. He didn't walk in the footsteps of Ahithophel. And I'm just saying by way of observation, it's a good reminder for New Testament Christians that you do not have to be bound to your ancestry. Just because you come from a line of whoever does not mean that you will be whatever they were. Ahithophel was a betrayer. I could make the case, and you see me do this earlier in 2 Samuel, that he was a kind of a type of Judas. And Eliam was the son of this man, but from what we gather, he did not walk in Ahithophel's steps. But if you want a clearer example, let me give you this one. Saul and Jonathan. I said earlier in 1 Samuel study, I think you can make the case that Saul was a kind of antichrist. But Jonathan was faithful to the point of death, even death on Mount Geboa. So I just want to remind you, it affords me the opportunity to remind you, you are not bound to your ancestry. What your mom did, or father did, grandfather, grandmother, whatever's in your family, just because it's there in your family, doesn't mean that that is there for your destiny. you got to put that away. 
I mean, too many Christians who are new creations in Christ live with that kind of specter, as it were, over their hearts and minds. And sometimes it comes in kind of ecclesiastical garb of generational curses that follow you, even though you're a new creation in Christ, and Christ bore your curse upon the tree, and you still think that you are under some generational curse. If you are in Christ, you are, in a, you are a new creation. The Holy Spirit of the living God is more powerful than all of the genetic material that's in your body. You are not bound to that. I'm not saying that you might not have to battle some things and are epigenetic things that can like show themselves in, your, you know, in, in the way that you're wired and so forth. I, I don't mean that. I just mean you're not bound to it. And I mean the Holy Spirit of the living God is more powerful than whatever predispositions you might have by way of experience and what you've seen or by way of DNA. You are a new creation in Christ and you're not bound to your ancestry. Third, I want to draw your attention to the last name on the list. I'm sure you felt it when I read it. Uriah the Hittite. You felt that, right? Uh, Me reading through the list wouldn't really necessitate or be described as a high, I know. But if you were to read through the list and you're coming through 2 Samuel and you're like, man, these names, these mighty men, these valiant deeds, and you're going through them, you're going through them, and then you come to the last name, and Uriah the Hittite. You felt it. Why did you feel it? Because if you're familiar with the story, if you're familiar with the text, when you hear the name Uriah, you think of David's sin with Bathsheba. That he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. And then to hide the reality of her becoming pregnant as a result of their adultery, he then conspired to have Uriah die on the field of battle. And that name, it's a shame in some ways because Uriah was uh, a valiant warrior. He was a faithful man to David. And by extension to Yahweh, to Yahweh's anointing, he was a faithful man. He was mindful of his soldiers. He didn't want to take ease and rest when his other soldiers were not in a position to do so. But yet when we hear that name, we're quick to be reminded, understandably so, of David's sin. And I do want to say, let it also be a reminder to you of God's grace. Not only a reminder of David's sin, but a reminder of God's grace But here I think it's a good reminder to us that David, as great as he was in many ways, he was a sinner that needed to be saved. David was not saved by David's greatness. No, David was saved ultimately by the blood of his great descendant who died for his sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom was David. He was a sinner. Last, I just want to call your attention to how I think David prefigured Christ. How David prefigured Christ. You know, interestingly, in this episode, you get a whole list of names. And at least some of the names that are listed here um, had their origin and their connection with David begin at the cave of Adullam. When David was on the run from Saul, he found refuge in this cave, a stronghold, the cave of Adullam. And do you remember how the people who gathered to him at the cave of Adullam were described? In 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, we're told, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented or literally bitter of soul gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. 
So there they were. At least some of the men, not necessarily all, but some of the men who were on this list were among those who were gathered to David. And who were they when they came to David? They were those who were in debt, discontented, and bitter of soul, and David became a captain over them. Imagine being a captain of that. <laughs> captain of a, of a group like that. A ragtag bunch like that. David received them, and under his leadership, they were changed, you might say. And they became valiant, mighty men. And I'd say to you, is it not reminiscent of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it is. Think of in Luke 15 of what the Pharisees and scribes said of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man receives tax collectors and sinners, and he eats with them. It's kind of like, reminds you of David here. He's in the cave, and who is he receiving? Kind of the riffraff of society. Those who are in debt, discontented, bitter of soul. And he receives them. Reminds me of Christ. Christ who's sitting with tax collectors and sinners. But he's not just hanging out with them. He was going to be the one who was going to change them. Calling them, saving them, changing them. And he would make them into much more than what they were. It's amazing when you go through the Scriptures. They came to Christ and whoever truly did come to Him, those over whom He truly became captain or Lord, they were changed. Matthew the tax collector came to him. And he became Matthew the Apostle. Mary Magdalene, who was a woman who was possessed by seven demons, became one of Jesus' most faithful followers. And the list could go on. Who are you before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me just tell you, there's good news. Regardless of who you are in this moment, if you are outside of Christ, Jesus Christ receives sinners. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done, Jesus Christ receives all who come to Him. Whatever baggage you have, it's not so much that Jesus Christ cannot receive you. This man receives tax collectors, sinners, and everything in between, if you will, and He changes them. And since the early days of the first century church, there has been a growing list of mighty men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit, often doing what are just very ordinary things. But their deeds are known as they advance the kingdom purposes of their king. They are known by their king. Their deeds are not forgotten. So you got some of the deeds of the mighty men here, and they're recorded. But I think it's a good reminder for us that whatever you do in Jesus' name is not forgotten. You give a glass of water in Jesus' name, according to Jesus, you by no means lose your reward. It's not forgotten. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42 As the writer of Hebrews put it, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. What you do have in a place like Romans 16, for instance, when you go through the list there, it's just the greetings of Paul, right? It's just the greetings as he's saying, you know, hellos to some brethren. But there's also included in there recollection of deeds done. I think it's a kind of New Testament version of this Old Testament annal. You see, for instance, in Romans uh, 16, Aquila and Priscilla risked their lives for him. Romans 16, verses 3 and 4. Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Apersus are all those who labored much in the Lord. And I just want to remind you, your name isn't on that list, and nor is your name in the list in 2 Samuel 23. But none of the deeds that you do are forgotten by the Lord Jesus Christ. As it were, there is a list in the mind of God of every valiant deed that His people have done in His name. 
And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the time will come for His people to stand before Him. They will be, all their deeds will become known before Him at the judgment seat of Christ. And every man's praise will be from God. He doesn't forget the deeds of His people. So I would say, so church, by the grace of God, may we seek to do good works, slay our own sin, and build up those with whom we have the honor of serving as something even more special than being the mighty men in David's army, but the dearly loved disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, for the um, great honor and privilege that we have to serve alongside of one another, Lord. That in this room there are mighty men and women, not because they are mighty in their own strength, but because by Your grace they have come to Your Son and have been changed. He has become a captain over them, and by His grace they have done valiant deeds like cared for those who were in need of assistance or opened their homes or shared the Gospel with others, Lord. And I thank You, Lord. May the mighty men and women of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place, Lord, whether they be old or young, somewhere in between, may by Your grace they continue to slay their own sin. May they continue by Your grace to do many valiant, noble deeds. May You help them, Heavenly Father, to serve others, to take that form of a servant, to pursue that uh, least of all position to become a servant of all, to overcome the fearful circumstances that they might find themselves in when they need to stand or serve or whatever it might be, that by Your grace they might be faithful. And Father, that by Your grace, Lord, we might offer proper service to the One who is much greater than David, the One who had no sin but died for sinners like David, and sinners like us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, help us to offer true and proper obedience and worship to our King in light of His greatness and in light of Your grace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.